Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Adrian Goldberg talks to acoustic indie folk duo We Are Muffy. Angeline Morrison and Nick Duffy came together after being in separate bands and often write and perform songs inspired by, amongst other things, their childhood memories of Birmingham. Adrian finds out why the city still inspires the pair, who now live in Cornwall. Yeah, I'm delighted to welcome you to a bit of a first for this series, a two for the price of one podcast recording, Nick Duffy and Angeline Morrison. Angeline Morrison and Nick Duffy. Collectively, we are Muffy, both formerly of this parish and still very much influenced by growing up in Birmingham as their album, The Charcoal Pool, bears eloquent testimony. Jez has spoken about his compilation, A Sonic Love Letter to Birmingham. I think it's fair to say that The Charcoal Pool is a sonic love letter to Birmingham as well. So welcome to We Are Muffy. One more time, please. So let's talk about that album first, some of the stories that inspired The Charcoal Pool. And when we were chatting uh, before we came on stage, Angeline, you were talking about The Charcoal Pool. There was a charcoal pool. There really was a charcoal pool. I should just say before I launch into that particular story that it was um, that Nick and I live in Cornwall now. And the, the sort of genesis of The Charcoal Pool was when um, Nick came up and found me after one. I was doing two gigs in one day in Falmouth. And was it after the first one you came backstage to find me? Yep, the very first. And asked if I would do backing vocals on your album of unorthodox... I didn't say backing vocals. I just would you like to do some singing. Thank you for the connection. (laughs) (laughs) Backing vocals, far too menial role. Well, I assumed you meant backing vocals at the time, but I ended up doing some Mm. lead vocals too. Mm. Um, So that was... I was very excited to be asked to contribute to Nick's Unorthodox Covers album. And we got chatting and, re- and started talking about our childhoods and teenage years in Birmingham. Um, and I said, in that, that afternoon, we were sitting on the grass in your garden, weren't we? And I said, why don't we do an EP of songs about growing up in Birmingham, about our memories? And we could do it in our, in our particular kind of weird style of, uh, of quirky folk, or whatever you want to call it. And... Um, and I think you said it feels like being at school. <laughs> it feels like I'd set you a school assignment. Well, that was during the writing. The first song we wrote together was actually that version of Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O. Because uh, it was a song that my dad used to sing around the house, though I never actually heard the whole of it, except the bit that went, Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O. So I went back to the Lonnie Donegan original, and we thought, well, we can, we can do this, and we can rewrite it, you know, the great folk tradition of moving on, and set it in Birmingham. We relaxed into it after that. It became a, an actual creative process and not an assignment. It was much more fun after we'd relaxed into it, wasn't it? Oh, much, much. So, the, so our, our, our Brummagem version of Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O contains verses like My old granny with long black teeth She was sitting in a tree in Washwood Heath <laughs> it's, it's highly specific, but we folk processed it, didn't we? Yeah, we did, we did. But go on, you were going to tell me about oh, the I charcoal pool. <laughs> Okay, well, um, some of you here will have met my dad, who was a very, um, a very unique man. Uh, <laughs> he was uh, he was uh, he was a doctor, and he he loved science, and he also was very interested in the occult. 
and in doing experiments. And one of my best friends described him as like a 17th century alchemist. And he kind of was. He was always experimenting on things. And we had in our back garden a swimming pool. And I'm quite reluctant usually to tell people about that because they automatically think that I grew up extremely overprivileged and in great luxury and so on. But actually, we just lived in a very, very ordinary suburb. And it wasn't posh at all, as anyone who's ever been to my house would be able to verify. But... um, The previous owner, I think, was a builder and he'd just created this this body of water in the back garden. And as children, it was amazing for us because we had lots of lovely parties and my little friends always wanted to come around and swim in the summer after school. Um, So it was was kind of a bit of a feature. And uh, at one point, my dad made friends with the man who ran the local pet shop and he started off by... My dad started off by inventing fish cures. He had an entire room full of chemicals and he'd be kind of there with all his lab equipment just inventing cures for the kinds of blights and funguses that affect fish. Um, and he would, uh, and his friend in the, in, who ran the pet shop would try them on the tropical fish. And sometimes they'd work and sometimes they would not work. Um, mm. But as a result of this interesting friendship, my dad acquired about 60 trout that he put in the pool. I'm, I'm not sure that that would be legal nowadays, but um, the trout lived for a little while, and he then bought some water snails, some algae, and, you know, trying to create, like, an ecosystem for the trout. But we didn't really know how to look after them, so we put fish food in, and then sometimes we put a cornetto in there for them, and they liked those, actually. They would zoom to the cornetto and go... Nom, nom, nom. But one of, one of my dad's brilliant ideas was that um, his hypothesis was that since dark colours attract heat and absorb, kind of absorb heat, um, if he could find a way to colour the water in the pool jet black, then he could save a lot of electricity on heating the water. So he um, dumped a whole load of charcoal in, in the water until the pool was jet black and the, the fish and all the other wildlife perished and nobody wanted to swim in it. So it was a 100% disaster, but that's the... <laughs> but Nick thought that sounded like a really good album title, The Charcoal Pool. <laughs> As it is. No, it way. It's, it's a great title, mm. yeah. yeah. Did, could you actually swim in The Charcoal Pool? I did. Nobody else would. I had a little party when I was about eight, and none of my friends wanted to go in, and one of them, in fact, said, well, my mum says I'm not allowed in your pool. Yeah, it was, it was, that was hard. <laughs> it was hard to hear. Yeah, in terms of stories in the in the on the album that kind of reflect your growing up, there's a there's a track called the outskirts as well, or outskirts. Yeah, Nick, yeah. Is, was was that a, a pertinent to you? Yeah, that was a kind of description of Hodge Hill, very much where we lived. I mean, not, not every aspect of it, obviously, but and I'm particularly worried about that line, 14 stops from town, because I'm never sure if that's correct. <laughs> it might be but more than 14 it, stops it just from town. Just it's scanned. <laughs> if anybody's familiar with the 56 bus route, you might want to go and count where they were at the time, historically. There are bus enthusiasts out there who might be able to help us with this. Yeah, outskirts is such an evocative word, though, isn't it? I grew up in sort of the far edges of Northfield, and we felt we were on the outskirts, on the edge mm. of something, whether that was something that you felt growing up, that you were near this thing called Birmingham, but actually it was also a long way away. Yeah, and you were near this thing which was called not Birmingham. You know, if you walked a little bit, you got to Castle Bromage or somewhere, and there were... Fields and cows and stuff. And you often fields with abandoned cars and rubbish in them, but, you know, <laughs> it was different from the rest of Birmingham. And, 
I was very struck by what Jess wrote about, you know, on, on the album sleeve about how great it was growing up in Birmingham, this rich cultural mix of music all around, all the time. And it wasn't like that when I was growing up in Hodge Hill. Just the bloke next door complaining about the noise. <laughs> so uh, it's got better since then. Well, there's a kind of a, a very pastoral feel to parts of the album in a way that is sort of not very Birmingham as people would imagine it and not in the way that you've described it. But you were saying, Angelina, about growing up the proximity to nature and to greenery in Birmingham, which many people would not necessarily associate with the city, mm. but is very much there. Yeah, it's very much there. It was so important to me as a child. Um, I was the sort of child who would just look for blades of grass growing through the cracks in pavements because nature is, and the land and, and the trees, and that's so important to me. And as a child, it made me feel safe and I felt like I could trust the trees. And one of the things that I, that I really love to this day about Birmingham and was particularly important to me as a child growing up in Birmingham was exactly as you say, the proximity of the countryside. Even if you're in the centre of town or in the middle of the suburbs, it doesn't take very long to get out into the greenery or the woodlands or, you know, wide spaces, wide grassy spaces. It's an odd thing, an odd recommendation, isn't it, really? That it's a great city because it's easy to get out of. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> I think what, what you said just then, Adrian, about how it's not, that's not normally how people think of Birmingham, is it? Um, the experience of being here is often very, very different from, from the kind of stereotypes that people have about, about mm. it. Hmm. There is a hint of a kind of uh, nostalgia at parts as well. The track Milk Bar, I don't know whether you want to talk about that, or the tracks that, that you most feel represent the Birminghamness of the album. Yeah, I had a great fondness for that Milk Bar, which was next to the Beaufort Cinema. And, you know, every end of term, I would go there with my friends. That was like a great celebration to go to the Milk Bar and have the flavour of your choice. See if it's open on a Wednesday. It never was open on a Wednesday, but, you know... <laughs> Sometimes you just thought, what are we going to do? There's nowhere to go, let's just try something. And uh, it didn't work. <laughs> but, you know, you walked around, you walked back again. Black attracts heat. What's the origin of that song? It was, it was the charcoal mm. pool. It was a gift that kept on giving, really. It was the concept mm. that, that black attracts heat. No deeper political meaning than that. No, 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 no. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> Just curious. People find their own meanings in songs. <laughs> you let them loose in the world and that happens. Tell me about school, Nick. School? Yeah. Fantastic. Loved school. Well, I think, you know, most of the time it's very dull. But um, one thing that happened to me at junior school that was kind of unforgettable and very influential was I just turned up one day in assembly or that kind of thing. And uh, this new teacher, Mr. Whittle, came in with all these kids, with all these weird kind of bits of wood and metal, and they started playing this outrageous music. I'd never heard anything like it. It was not of this earth. This was Mr. Whittle's percussion band. They got these kids to uh, make up their own... They were making their own music. It wasn't kind of something they'd learnt from, you know, the BBC songbook or whatever. They'd made up this completely new music, this jangling sound. And uh, I wasn't in Mr. Whittle's class. You know, he was teaching the, the younger years. I never got into the percussion band. I never thought, oh, I should get into this, you know. I should get him to make a special case. But that, I think, had more influence on me than any of the actual teaching that went on in the school. And I feel like I've always been trying to recreate the sound of Mr. Whittle's percussion band ever since. 
And, and it was pure percussion? Pure percussion, yeah, just bits of metal, bits of wood, maybe some drums, I can't remember. And uh, I didn't hear anything remotely like it until I heard Gamelan for the first time. So it was very, very special. I think you've said, haven't you, you actually learnt more out of school than you did learn in school. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I have got a, an O-level general studies, and that, is, um, that was a very dull lesson. I think the teacher thought the same thing. I think he got very bored. And One day he came in and said, well, you know, we've been talking about all this stuff, but today I bought in my old rock and roll records. So I thought, well, that's ancient history. We'll learn something about the past and you know, how people did things in ye olde times. And he put this music on again. I thought, well, I've missed something here, haven't I? This isn't, you know, the previous generation's outdated nonsense. So at the end of the lesson, I said, could I possibly, you know, take a couple of these home? He said, have the lot. He just handed them all over. Wow. So, and he gave me a very good mark. Wow. I think otherwise I would have failed general studies. And it's been a great help to me over the years. Can you remember what you inherited or were gifted? He didn't gift them to me. He just, I only borrowed them for the one yeah, night. I, yeah. I recorded them, yeah. Summertime blues and rave on and all these classics. And some, you know, daft things as well, like Hootsman. <laughs> How important was music in your childhood and growing up, Angeline? It couldn't have been more important, really. I can't stress how important it was. We had a... We had a very musical... I grew up in a very musical family, but not in the sort of conventional sense. Like, it wasn't a family where we were necessarily encouraged to learn to play, to read music or play instruments, although we did do that. But it, we were really a singing family. And all of us, my mum, my dad, my sister and myself, would quite unselfconsciously, not even realising that we were doing it, and still do to this day, my sister and I, just walk around singing. We would literally just walk around singing. You'd be washing up, singing, making a cup of tea, singing. And so singing is as natural to me as breathing. It always has been. I don't really think about it. And we were soaked in, in music from a variety of, of kind of sources. So, so my dad had like his collection of 60s pop music, which I really loved. My mum was absolutely obsessed with soul music and she loved Sam Cooke and all the Jamaican music came from my mum. My dad actually really, lo he was, he really loved Jamaica as well. He went to work there for many years and lived there and that's where he met my mum. So we listened to a lot of Jamaican music at home and also we, were, we grew up in, in church so there was a lot of, it was a chapel so there was a lot of hymn singing which I absolutely loved. So I kind of learned the structure of, of Methodist hymns which are I have to say, mostly absolute bangers. They're amazing tunes. The Methodist hymns are the what, best. What are we thinking? Onward, onward Christian soldiers, that sort of thing. <laughs> and that, that wouldn't be necessarily one of my favourites. Oh, what, what, what's sing. your favourite? Go on. Gosh, don't be up in the, um, let me think. Have I got an absolute favourite hymn? Sorry, I can't think of one now. I'm we'll on the come spot. back to it. <laughs> I'll come it's back to right, that. Yeah. But yeah, so, the, so there was loads of singing. And I used... Well, I always made up songs. I just always, always, always made... I spent a lot of time on my own... And I spent a lot of time making up songs. And for me, that was part of um, learning about myself and about the world and about self-expression. So I do lots of work with children. I run like singing workshops and singing and music sessions with primary school age children. Because I, after I spent quite a lot of time working with children, I realised that there seems to be a natural phase where children do songwriting. And they just start making up songs about things. And I thought, if I can 
catch them at this age and really encourage them to keep going with it and to to really think about the words and think about the tunes and and to really keep going with that that can be something that they can keep as a tool for their self-expression as they go through life because it's a I found it's an amazing way of trying to figure things out when you're confused or stressed or upset initially you just did that unselfconsciously sort of without being taught you just absorbed that within your yeah, family I was never formally taught songwriting to this day I haven't ever been taught songwriting or singing or anything but I did have a lot of influences that I did absorb so it didn't completely um all sort of well out of me naturally we're all a product of our influences aren't we I guess mm. and Nick if you weren't getting on massively well at school then what were you doing were you hanging out at youth clubs hanging out with your mates on the streets what were you doing yeah hanging out with mates not on the streets uh, one of my mates was Chris Long who uh, you might better know as Legs Akimbo or as a member of the Nose Flutes Vic Pelthrust <laughs> and we used to spend a lot of time messing around with uh, my tape recorder Particularly, we liked kind of hooking it up to the turntable so it ran backwards and then learning how to say things backwards so that they came out the right way. <laughs> that was a very good one. We got as far as anti-disestablishmentarianism and, and moved on. Yeah, some, some listeners may not remember or know of Legs Akimbo. He released a single, I think, called Land of the Bearded Cricketers did, yes. on Robert Lloyd's Vindaloo Which has one of my songs on it and a picture of me on the back. <laughs> there so, we go then, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So this was sort of very much then off, off curriculum, but, you know, kind of finding mm. your own way in music and in, in areas that were not <clears throat> particularly mainstream either. Yeah, I guess so. That was very attractive to me at the time. And the other thing was um, the Arts Lab in Birmingham, back when it was in Tower Street. And there was a, a sound workshop there led by somebody called Jolien Laycock. And I saw in the programme one week that he was running a synthesizer building workshop so I thought, well, this is you know, going to be something. So I went along to that with a, another school friend, and we didn't actually learn how to build a synthesizer, but you know, he was building one himself, which he was making in this industrial cabinet that he got out of an old metalworking workshop somewhere. It had lots of little drawers in it that used to have nuts, bolts, and washers and stuff in. And in each one of these, he would put a different module of the synth. It was literally a modular synth. So he'd have like a ring modulator here and a low-frequency oscillator, all that kind of stuff. But then he says, I'm, I'm putting this performance on at the Arts Lab, you know, kind of dance, and I can't remember much about the performance. He says, does anybody want to come along and help do it? So I ended up doing that for a week. It was called The Crash Landing of Mr. Egg. Wow, so where's this talking? Early 70s, mid-70s? Yeah, early 70s. Been? If you thought of a place in Birmingham where you could go and see a synthesizer being built, synthesizers now are part of the ordinary everyday instrumentation of music. But at that yeah. stage, that, that really was at the cutting edge of, of where music was. Yeah, yeah, it really was. I wasn't at the cutting edge of where music <laughs> was, but uh, I like to rub shoulders with it. For people who don't know what the Arts Lab was, I, I do remember it, and it became the Triangle at mm. Aston University as well. Just talk us about the Arts Lab, because I think that gave Birmingham a kind of cultural identity, maybe. A cultural did. something, didn't it? Yeah, I think it was like everybody who didn't know didn't have another place to go to, ended up at the, at the arts lab, really. It was very like arts colleges at that time. It was like people who didn't fit in elsewhere would go there. And there were, you know, studios in there that people worked in, so you could, whatever you wanted to do, you could find a space to do it, really. They showed films, so that was the kind of more mainstream side of it. 
But yes, there was always some kind of happening going on there. Yeah, although the films were not especially mainstream either, were they? We showed French films, German films. So when did you think then, was there some point at which you thought, you know, this world of exploration that I'm engaged on could become, if not a living, then something that, that drives my life? No, not really. Never. <laughs> no, I thought, what, what is going to become of all of this? And, uh, and you know, I did go to art college after that, for that very reason. It's like, what? I thought, well, I'll go to art college, and then when I come out, I'll kind of immerse myself in this kind of arts lab world thing that's going on. But by the time I came out, it, it wasn't there anymore. Things had moved on, and different people were doing things in abandoned buildings, but it wasn't that, you know. It also coincided with the election of Margaret Thatcher, so... Uh, a lot of derelict buildings became lucrative properties and everything shifted. Angeline, when did you think this, this could be something I'm going to do with my life? Music, do you? Yeah. Um, I kind of always... I, I always imagined that I would do it. I always believed I would do it. And I always... I was never, I've never not been doing it. Um, but I've just done other stuff as well because it's... Sometimes it can be quite hard to make enough money to live on um, doing purely music, and you have to be super creative trying to think of other things. But I, always, I was dead set on it, even when I got rejected from the school choir. Why did you, get, reje- why did you get rejected from the school choir? Day. How did that happen? No idea. I got rejected three times in a row, and then they finally let me in. <laughs> I got rejected from the school choir, but that's because I've got a voice like a corn crake. But that does, <laughs> that does not apply to you. So Some people a... love the tone of the corn crakes. Tra- <laughs> oh, the corn crakes, yeah. mostly. Oh, corn crakes, yeah, they go nuts for it. <laughs> Weirdly, I was actually press-ganged into the school choir. I didn't want to be in it. If I'd known what was going on, I would have sang like a corncrake and I could have got out of it. Yeah, that was a bad experience. I was just going to say, what happened in your school choir? It was dull, so dull. And, and we had to do some kind of performance on the stage of some dreadful music that I couldn't stand. And, and we were reading it from music. I mean, nobody said, can you read music, which I thought would have been a, a good starter, really. So I was just going, going blah, 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 and... Nobody told me off, so I don't know how I got away with that. You've talked a little bit, Angeline, about your sort of parental influence on music. So is, is that, was that really where your music came from, where your love of music is, or any other influences? Um, I, think, I think my love of music is innate, because I can't remember a time when I didn't love music, and when I wasn't always looking for something to listen to. So I would meticulously go through all the records in my parents' collection. They didn't have a huge amount, but I... I knew them all inside out and back to front. And there was quite a lot of variety. Like there was, a, there was an album of, um, of Hawaiian tunes by the Waikiki Boys <laughs> that had a, a massive influence. And mostly it was the cover that was a big influence because in the bottom right-hand corner um, on the back cover, there was a picture of like a Hawaiian mask but it was, or, or an approximation of a Hawaiian mask built by the props department in London or wherever. And it was terrifying. It had these hollow, googly eyes and a, and, a, a, and a mouth that went on forever. And I was actually... I was so scared of it that my mum got a biro and she attempted to... to um, just to biro over this month, which had the effect of making it look even more sinister <laughs> and even more terrifying. Mm. Yeah, but to answer your question... Uh, yeah, so... Th- I, I think I think it's I think it was innate really for me. Yeah, yeah. Love of music, it was always there. 
What were you listening to growing up then, Nick? Well, growing up, the Beatles dominated everything, which actually I kind of resent now. I was a kind of brand loyalty to that. So the Beatles coming to an end was a great liberation for me because you had to think, well, what else is going on? Well, I kind of felt like discovering all this stuff which was going on at the same time that I'd missed out on, one of which was the incredible string band. It was a very, uh, very special thing to go and see them at the town hall, which you know, is obviously a great thing about Birmingham. Isn't it? It's not just what happens here, it's that everybody comes here as well. So people are passing through all the time. And I've, I've spoken to your brother Stephen about the incredible string band and how seeing that concert mm. at Birmingham Town Hall was a seminal moment for oh, him. Yeah. For, for, for people who don't know the incredible string band or know who they are, just kind of talk me through then why that was such a, a moment, a momentous gig. I think there was just something so very genuine about them. You know, you saw so much stuff which you thought, well, you know, there was extreme show business at one end and there was like very, uh, very worthy like folk at the other end. And they were somewhere, they were just doing what they were doing and you felt like you were, had gone along as if they were kind of playing in their living room, just doing what they do. I think that was what was really kind of engaging about it. And the clothes that they wore, you you can't buy these in shops. They clearly had kind of engineered them out of bits that they'd found, which was also an inspiration, I have to say. Mm. I got very good at that thing of putting a triangle at the side of a pair of trousers to make them into flares. <laughs> I, could, I could help you out with these, if you like. <laughs> the incredible string band was actually one of the things that Nick and I bonded over. You were amazed, weren't you, that I also really loved them. I, I, discovered, them, mm. um, I discovered them as I was going through um, the boxes in a, a, a second-hand record shop in Harborne that I used to walk to every Saturday. Because so, that's the other thing about Birmingham, there's some fantastic record shops, aren't there? Um, you could, I, I used to spend most of my Saturdays looking for old records, and I was, I was really struck by the iconography of the Incredible String Band. That was what, I hadn't heard of the band, but I was obsessed with anything to do with the 60s. And I absolutely loved what they were wearing and their look, and I thought, I have to listen to these people, and I loved the name. And I brought the record home, and it was a, it was a, a best-of compilation... Um, but I just couldn't stop listening. I wanted to live in their world. They mm. created this absolutely magical, ethereal other world, and it felt like they really did live in it, and the stories that they were telling, they were really telling from that world, and I felt that there was so much possibility in their music about what musicians can do. It's like they were, they were almost... It almost felt like, as Nick was saying, they were playing in their living rooms. And were you already performing at that point? Not at all, no, no, no. I dreamed of performing. I was incredibly shy. I oh. didn't know if I ever would be confident enough to perform. But, uh, but I was always singing to myself and always composing. I'd composed wow. many, many songs by that point and was really influenced um, by the incredible string band's compositions as well. At that, at that period, I was kind of taking more risks, but no, I, I wasn't... No, but so yet. as you tell it, that was one of the things that encouraged you to be bolder with your music. So can you remember when you first, yeah. you first performed, what made you kind of, kind of make that brave step? It was actually not until I got into my first band uh, at uni, and that was, it was having other people there that made me feel confident enough to perform. And um, we were called Shatner after William Shatner. <laughs> 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 so you can, <laughs> you can probably hear the sound of the music through that but um yeah we were uh it, it, I, I kind of at that point i needed to, i needed to feel like i had other people around me and that i was part of a sort of a gang um and i didn't have 
the the confidence to sing on my own. But very shortly after that, I became... Just having a little bit of experience being on stage, I, I gradually got a bit more confident. And interestingly, I had, before that, um, as a teenager, I would sing unaccompanied in folk clubs because I got into traditional music as a as quite a young child, really. I was about eight or nine, and I just happened to hear Shirley Collins on the radio. Um, it, was a, it was Radio 4 was on in the background in the house, and I heard this extraordinary voice. Um, and I later discovered that it was Shirley Collins singing Our Captain Cried. But at the time, I didn't know who it was. I had never heard archaic language like this. I hadn't heard those sorts of cadences. I was absolutely captivated. And I just stood still where I was and absorbed it all and made it my mission then to find out as much as I could about, about this world and all this music and, uh, and folklore and folk practices and so on. And that's partly what sort of took you away from Birmingham, wasn't it? Oh, partly, yes. Do you mean the obvious? Yeah, I, um, I got a, a record out of um, Birmingham Library. It was, a, it was an old recording of ancient ritual practices, folk practices that are still practised in the British Isles, like all, all around the year, all through the year. Um, so Abbott's Bromley Horn Dance was on there, and there was a recording of the music of the horn dance, which... Um, which I don't think they play at the moment. They play Morris tunes. But the original Abbott's Bromley Horn Dance tune, it's so haunting. And it sounds almost Scandinavian. I'm not sure if anybody knows the origins of this tune, but if you, if you haven't heard the original Abbott's Bromley Horn Dance tune, I would recommend that you check it out, because it's extraordinary, it's beautiful. And there were lots of other traditions, but the one that really grabbed me was a May Day tradition in Cornwall, in Padstow, um, the Obios, which... If anybody hasn't heard of the Obios, it's extremely ancient and nobody knows how old it is. But some people have said that this was practiced by ancient Britons thousands of years ago. We don't know, but the people of Padstow are very proud of this, this tradition. There's a special song and the Obios, which is another way of saying hobby horse, I guess, is danced around the village and there's someone inside it and they do a really extraordinary dance with lots of crouching and weaving and it doesn't look like any kind of folk dance that you might have seen in Britain. It's really compelling to watch. And there are lots of traditions surrounding the obios. You can, you can touch it for luck. If it goes past you and you are someone of childbearing age and you want to have a child, go and touch it. If you don't want to have a child, step away from the obios. <laughs> because it's, it's, its fertility powers are apparently very strong. It used to be covered in tar. And then you could tell if somebody had been brushed by the os because they would have tar on them. And, you know, if that was a woman, she'd be pregnant within nine months. I, was, I became really fascinated by this. And the, on this record, there were like lots of vox pops of people describing how it felt to be there as part of the, a part of the ritual. And I was really determined that I wanted to see it. I was probably 16 or 17 at this point. And I got on a coach and booked myself into a, a B&B in Padstow and went down there and went down there for the night before because there's a special song um, the night before and then really just was so taken over by it that there's the, the drum beat really gets into your body on a very deep level. It's hard to describe. It just it affects me on a really deep level and it made me quite tearful when I was first there. And I just completely fell in love with it and wanted to go and live in Cornwall because of that, to be closer to the Obios. So that ended up happening. Wow. And Nick, you now live in Cornwall as well. I just want to talk to you about early performances, though, because you, you did perform in Birmingham before you 
you made the jaunt to Cornwall. Yeah, not not very often, I have to say. I know I played a few times in folk clubs with Chris Long, certainly. But I can't remember where. I mean, where was this folk club that we went to? I do remember turning up there one night and he'd been working at Drayton Manor Zoo <laughs> and he'd written a song called Under Influence. Which went, you know, under Influence, Under Influence. My mind strayed away from the elephants. <laughs> and... That's probably the first time I ever got up on stage and performed with somebody. And then, uh, as I was saying earlier, and I know that... Well, the only time I can remember the lilac time playing here was when we played at Pebble Mill, on Pebble Mill at One. A memorable performance on Pebble Mill at One. You remember it? Did you see it? (laughs) I think it was what you couldn't see was the thing, that we did this performance of Black Velvet, and they turned on the smoke machine to give it a bit of atmosphere, which turned into a lot of atmosphere and just completely whited out the screen. <laughs> and there were you know, people running around with clipboards trying to get rid of it. And occasionally one of our faces would loom through the smoke. So, yeah. That isn't what drove you away from Birmingham, though, was it? No, I, I think a lot of things drove me away from Birmingham, really. I, I never quite... Uh, I just felt out of place here, I think. I didn't feel like a particularly urban person. You know, we'd go on holiday once a year. We'd take a fortnight in some exotic location like Seton or Woolacombe. And I thought, well, why aren't we living here instead of that other place? So there wasn't really much more to it than that. But, you know, I did kind of get out as soon as I could. Yeah, but it's fair to say that at that time you were not a fan of Birmingham, though, were you? No, I was not a fan of Birmingham, no. Mm. How, How do you view the city now from the distance of... You know, a few decades and a few hundred miles yeah, living I'm in Cornwall. I'm coming to terms with it. It's kind of a therapeutic experience, uh, writing the charcoal pool, you know. It all started with Angeline saying, well, we, we, could, we could do something, and then it became a, a Birmingham-focused exercise. So I had to kind of, you know, look at my past and talk about it and sing about it even. Because before that, I wasn't even singing, you know, that was... The whole reason I got Angeline in to sing is because I thought, well, I want to do these cover versions of songs, but I'm not going to sing them. And she said, why not? Having said that, it's great to be back. It really is. You have to say that. No, <laughs> no it is great to be back. Yeah. So the, the Birmingham grew, you grew up in and the Birmingham you see and feel now, what, what would you say are the main differences? It's completely different. And, you know, we were walking along the canals yesterday because... They do feature in this song that we've put on on record. And I didn't even know there were canals in Birmingham. But I was walking down Broad Street one day and it was just this boarded up thing on the right. Everything was boarded up most of the time. But one of the boards was loose. And I went through. It really was, you know, I was breaking and entering into this unknown territory. And I went down some steps and there was this water full of rubbish. A sort of grey, furry mound in the middle, which I eventually realised was a dead dog. And I just walked along through these kind of dark, kind of old, decrepit buildings and came to that signpost saying, you know, Worcester this way, Kidderminster that way. I just thought, this is extraordinary. But I didn't want to go too far because it was a bit scary. But that was the beginning of exploring the canals. And it was... It was a kind of nature reserve because it was so neglected that wildlife was flourishing there. And that's the first place I ever saw a kingfisher. And you'd be walking along, there'd be a splash, and there'd be a water vole swimming along. And, you know, 
That is different now. Angeline, how have you negotiated your past with Birmingham now, you know, then and now? Well, I, I never had a bad relationship with Birmingham, actually. I've, I've always championed it. When, when people say to you, where are you from? And you say, Birmingham. And then they say, oh, Birmingham, back to you in a Scouse accent. And I've, I've always... <laughs> I do, don't they? <laughs> and they always seem to assume Birmingham's a bit rubbish, and I always stick up for it. But it is so different. Um, you know the folk song, I Can't Find Brummagem? <laughs> I did feel a bit like that, because it's so glam. It's so glam and, it, and, and exciting. And we were walking along the canals, and so, like, I, don't, I didn't really have any experience of the canals as Nick describes them, because when I found the canals, Brindley Place was already a thing. But um, it was really interesting yesterday. The sun was shining, and the canals were literally thronging with people, and it felt like a festival Everyone was wet, dressed beautifully. Brummies are cool, aren't they? They're very stylish <laughs> people. And everyone was looking really styly and really good and, and everyone was having fun and there were all these bars and um, it was sort of a little bit like Paris or a bit like San Francisco. Or it, was, it was just cool. And uh, that, that was new. I just want to talk a little bit about the, the music industry in which you're in, you know, given that we're now in this very sort of digital world and, and yet your music obviously it's rooted in tradition, rooted in folk music. Well, you know, I think folk music is uh, a long tradition, isn't it? It isn't, isn't daunted by any change, really. It incorporates change as it goes along. And, you know, we're part of that. I don't know what, what could stop it, really. No, but nice, nice to have a, a sense of being part of some kind of enduring tradition. Yeah, I think so. And mm -hmm. I, I agree with Nick. I think, you know, there will always be folk music in whatever format... Yeah, and it is a tradition of change, isn't it? It's, it's not something that's, that's fixed. Change so, is, yeah. is, is a fundamental part of mm. the tradition. I think it's always going to change. Whether, that's, whether the change is, is intentional or unintentional, I think the change is one of those things about folk music that just, just is a defining part of it. Mm. Is there something about being in Cornwall that kind of plays to that folk music tradition? Could you ever imagine yourself making this music in Birmingham? Well, I could, certainly, yes. Yeah. Make it anywhere. I could too, but I do think that a massive part of writing that album was our distance from Birmingham, actually. Mm. And that enabled us to examine our, the years that we spent living here mm. um, in, because, in, in different ways. In yeah, because when we came here to play for the first time, we went to all those locations. We went to where you lived, we went to where I lived... I think if we'd been trying to write it here, we would have said, oh, let's just take a trip and go and see that place, and it wouldn't have got made. So I think, you know, it being a kind of an imaginative landscape, that did help, I think. Yeah, I think it, I think it did. We had to recreate those worlds, first of all in our heads and then in musical form. And um, that probably would have been more difficult if we'd been present in those worlds. Mm. Or maybe we wouldn't have even thought to do it, actually. Plus, I think Birmingham now would have kind of distracted us from reimagining what it was like at the time, you know, and being able to convey it. Well, it's a, a beautiful record, and I know that we're going to hear some selections from it shortly. But for now, for the conversation, thanks very much indeed to Nick Duffy and Angeline Morrison. We are Muffy. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you. On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival 
with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. <laughs>